0: Hello and welcome to the Real Vision Daily
1: Briefing. It's Friday, February 4th, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake and here with me today is the one and only Harry Malandry, advisor at MI2. Hi, Harry, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. It's good to see you again, Maggie. Same here, same here. So great to have you on uh, Friday, Jobs Friday, another big surprising number. We have saw a move up in US bond yields, equity markets that actually stabilized after posting some pretty big swings again this week so let's let's kick it off with jobs um what did you make of the report was there any new information in there for us
2: so there is so much new information i can't really give you a sensible answer because uh first of all on its face those are obviously blowout numbers um but they also included a massive seasonal adjustment Mm -hmm. and uh, a massive population control adjustment so there's a zero hedge story about it. I, I think it's the kind of thing I don't want to mislead anybody or give you a steer, but that's an incorrect, but I think it's one of those where you have to go back and really dig into the data to, to truly understand what happened. Um, I've got one observation for you, which is pretty much every cycle. You, you, you reach some point where they do a, uh, uh some sort of backward review and reassess what the position is and you then you find out how many jobs were really being created and what was what the real situation was so it wouldn't be the first time that we all got a shock and look back over the course of 10 months or something and find out wow actually we're completely wrong and there's a million extra jobs in this economy than we'd realize and in fact we're already overheating yeah um But as I said, it's a little early for me to make a a definitive comment on this because those were huge adjustments. Uh, I I could not tell you what the net of those adjustments of seasonal population control, which is like a 10-year adjustment, they they re-controlling for the size of the U.S. population Mm -hmm. and COVID. So the net of it, don't know. What I do know is that every central bank, as in the West at least, China's a little different, Um, has come to terms with uh, growth pretty much being at trend. And maybe the ECB, that's not true, but for the Fed, it's not so much the inflation, which has been, you know, stonkingly high. It's the fact that there's no significant output gap anymore. Um, So we've got a monetary policy that's set for COVID and the disaster that's associated with COVID. uh, And COVID seems to be roughly, uh, you know, give or take, uh, over, so every monetary policy seems to be totally inappropriate here. It's totally inappropriate in Japan. It's totally inappropriate in the in the eurozone. Yeah, uh, it's not surprising the bonds don't have many friends.
1: And and you can kind of see that in the in the sharp pivot they're all making. You know, they might as well hang a banner and say we are we are so far off the mark on this, and we are behind and kind of scrambling. You get the sense they want to be aggressive here, Harry, but can they be?
2: So they can be aggressive if they choose to. But if they wanted to be aggressive, why would you wait till March? So I can't think of any other sensible reason to wait till March other than you don't want to scare the horses, i.e. us, people who are participants in markets. So to my mind, the very fact the Fed's waiting till March to do something Uh, tells you that the priority remains growth over inflation. And I'm a little skeptical about where we get when they start to tighten policy. Uh, I'm not sure we'll see very positive real rates when they finish the tightening cycle. Um, And I talked to friends about this, people who are significantly better connected than me, which is not so difficult, I'm sure you could imagine. But they, they were pointing out that if, if this goes according to plan, with the, with their, when they talk to their Fed contacts, this, this is a multi-year tightening uh, cycle. We mm-hmm. could be tightening for 24 months before we get back to normal. And that's true as, for the balance sheet as well. Um, there's significant tightening that should come through both of those, If you know, given where we are. So uh, I can see why the equity market is not necessarily petrified. Uh, while the bond market is readjusting to it. For me, I'm a little concerned about the whole thing because after all, what what kind of tightening is it if financial conditions don't tighten? Yeah. Uh, so down the line somewhere, financial conditions are going to tighten one way or the other.
1: There's. It's been so long since we've been in this situation. There seems to be you know this sense of doom. I mean, we see it coming through the the, the in the questions we're getting just today. How much further our equities going to fall if they're going to tighten? If they, especially if they do something fifty basis points in March. Sounds like you don't think they'll do that. They're going to just be st- steady drip for years of trying to gradually get us there. Is it a foregone conclusion that that, that we will have to see severe fallout if we're entering? A, a new reality where the fed is going to hike rates 25 basis time, points every time they meet can can the economy and asset markets adjust to that if it's gradual
2: so uh, i'm not a fed analyst but i'm going to play one right now on tv briefly <laughs> and the the what i'd argue is that the fed will probably be un- unhappy or unwilling at this stage to pencil in a hike for both march and may because doing that would make it look as if it's gonna be. Uh, people will extrapolate, and they'll say, "Oh my God, every meeting will be 25," and you'll you'll get that extrapolated down in down the ED curve and in the bond mark bond curves. And so I would have thought the Fed's objective was to put a placeholder in, do, do 25 in March. Say, look, the process has started. And then try and hold off in May and then, and then you get all the data through to June and you'll have three months of additional data where you can find out exactly how far behind the curve. And us frogs will be gently boiled a little bit more um, <laughs> while we sit there wondering what's going on. And I just think that that's clearly, if they were that worried, we'd already have hiked. So mm. I think there's a poker tell in what their priority is. And the priority probably remains growth, even though, and I think the, the, this is a really important thing to bear in mind, uh, inflation is not a vote winner. Yeah. Uh, th- this is the Biden Fed now. So he's appointed a whole bunch of people to it. Uh, Jay Powell knows what his instructions are and what they're trying to achieve. Inflation is not a vote winner anymore and it's actually slightly embarrassing uh, to the administration. So they, they will be doing something the only question is the balance between the hawks and the doves, and I'm pretty sure the hawks, for example, would like to see uh, uh, some significant, you know, a step towards QT before the September hiatus, because you're going to have midterms. People are not going to be <laughs> Fed policy is not in play during midterms, so there's there's, there's going to be an argument from hawks to to do something in the uh, uh, prior to September. Probably something like July, and then there'll be an argument from doves that that can maybe wait until after September and you know push it back. Um, me personally, as I said, ultimately it's about where financial conditions are. Mm. And if equities haven't gone down, bonds have tightened up, but equities have not noticed. Uh, well, real rates are still massively negative. Uh, people are still buying real estate. There's still shortages of you know more more buyers and sellers of of residences. Uh, the Fed's got a lot of work to do. It does.
1: Um, We have Oliver, uh, if you missed the top, Oliver was asking about the jobs number when not adjusted was not good. Some have said the jobs number when not adjusted was not good at all. Is it true? And how much weight do you put on either number, adjusted or not adjusted? I think we've established that kind of hard to get a read on these numbers right now until we can work through some of this.
2: Yeah, there's always a big seasonal adjustment at this time of year. So it would be unfair to, to not use some kind of seasonal adjustment, but with the population control adjustment, there's so much noise. I think a sensible guy would would, would not comment without digging <laughs> deep into this data. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm not a sensible guy, so I comment a lot anyway, but I, I wouldn't place much weight on that. and I would definitely look at the data or look at a, a good analyst after he'd done a very deep dive into this. Um it would be a mistake to draw to draw too much of a uh, inference from the data we've seen it's yeah. it's hella noisy i
1: think it it. it it is, but I mean anecdotally we all we we are all experiencing you know hours being cut back, labor shortages i mean, just you just in your general travels we see this anyone who owns a small business, if you know anyone who does all they're t- talking about is it being difficult to get help and they're having to pay up for it. So, you know, anecdotally, we have a sense of what's going on, even if we're not getting clarity from the labor market. Yo-Yo is asking from the RV site, where do you see the 10-year yield going? 2%?
2: 2.25%? Picking tops is is, is an error, right, on yields. Um, it's, I suspect it's going higher. Me personally, I'm starting, like, you know, MI2 as a firm, we're very early on this question of, of how high uh, the inflation was going to be embarrassingly high, high enough to adjust policy in and in itself. And this was an unconventional view 12 months ago. Shockingly enough, believe it or not, people didn't believe that you could have inflation so high that it would embarrass the Fed. Um, it's true. If anything, uh, we would suggest that we've got the top is in for inflation numbers in the short term. So the embarrassment will start to come down. Uh, the curious thing about this is that if you look at the last 40 years, inflation has been in a naught to 5% range for a pretty long spell of times, uh, most of the 80s, all of the 90s, pretty much, and beyond. Uh, we don't usually, we haven't recently had higher inflation than that. Well, we're in a different environment now. We're at 7%. And usually when it breaks above, I mean, I hate to be all technical with you, you know. Talk technical answer. Usually, a break above is, is is confirmed in the case of inflation. And higher inflation tends to go along with higher volatility of inflation. So, if you look back at the the pandemic about a hundred years ago, uh, ironically, almost exactly a hundred years ago now, uh, that pandemic saw the highest inflation print we've seen in the in the series, uh, followed by the lowest deflation. You know, the biggest negative numbers on inflation, um, and. Uh actually, the, the vol of inflation stayed pretty high right through till the 80s. So um, where could, the, if I say where would the 10-year go, I'd be kind of saying I don't believe there's a significant inflation problem. But I don't know if that's true. I think there probably is a significant inflation problem because it will come down. It's, because of the base effects, there's no way it's going to stay at 7%. But is it going to come down to 2% where it was before for large stretches of that period? I don't think so. I can't see how that – it's certainly not going to happen in the short term. Um, it seems to make, to make more sense to me that we should see something like 3% to 4% inflation in the shorter term, in the, in the medium term over the next couple of years. Um, well, why are you buying 10-year bonds that yield nominal 2.5% when you've got 3 to 4% inflation? So where where is the top on that? We'd need quite a nasty recession to come in to cap bonds out at something like two and a quarter. Uh, And I'm not saying that isn't going to happen. I'm just saying it isn't going to happen in the first half of 2022.
1: Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
1: You know, we, we're in this situation where we're we're talking about the Fed, but we also, as you mentioned before, Bank of England, hiking rates, ECB now sounding much more hawkish than people had anticipated, at least sooner. Um, sort of having to walk back their transitory policy. So now you've got all of these central banks, um, certainly in the West. We haven't been here in a long time, too, and they're not potentially not going to move all at the same pace. You know, what how does that play out in your mind? And and if I remember correctly, you spent a little bit of time at the Bank of England back in the day, didn't you,
2: Harry? Yeah, I did. And I think the Bank of England would rather I didn't remember that. I I suspect they would rather that that never happened to. So the bank at this point, uh, by the way, one of the guys who was a graduate intake from the same year I went in was a guy called Andrew Bailey. Uh, Oh, really? I I think he did better. I think he did okay there. But anyway, so. uh, the banks the bank of england's kind of interesting because they seem to have jumped the gun on everybody else um there's probably a reason for that they probably i would guess that the uk is actually more vulnerable to capital flight than other major blocks but we've got an, a curious situation where everyone in the west has rates that are too low and inflation that is too high um and clearly policy will be tightened in those places. That's never going to be good for asset prices. We can quibble about which asset prices go down. It might be only bonds. It might be equities managed to outperform all the time. But overall, the pressure on capital in the West will be for it to leave, not for it to attract. Whereas in China, they're cutting rates. So the heat gradient, if you will, and forgive my mediocre physics and trying to use it, but there's, there's a significant difference which you'd have thought would normally be attracting capital into China and Asia while it's repelled away from the United States or Europe. Now, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, but uh, yeah, the Bank of England will give us a pretty good idea be a little because it's a little earlier. It will give us an idea of how much they have to do to kind of head off these inflation pressures, to kind of head off this capital flight problem that you might get if you're raising rates and uh, your, your exchange rates are a little vulnerable.
1: Yeah, I was going to say things, things might get interesting in the currency markets,
2: maybe opportunity. Bad time, right? It's been dead for God knows how long. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we, we really like the idea that the euro could go on a little trip higher here. Um, and, you know, after things like the euro, you know, euro has been, people have assumed they were never going to raise rates. Um, I vaguely recall last time I was on chatting to you that we talked about EDs and we were, we had, you know, sold EDs and told people to be short EDs. But we'd, I'd suggested that we should switch because there was quite a lot in the price for EDs and there was very little in the price for Euribor and, and European rates. Well, I got that half right, right? Because um, uh, actually you should have kept your, your ED short and added a Euribor short. And uh, the thing really broke yesterday. The, the uh, Lagarde's shocked people. Now, I don't know why they were so shocked because you've got massive inflation in the Eurozone and negative rates. So, like, how long was that going to persist for? But people were surprised. This is a big change.
1: Yeah, and when you're saying ED, Harry, for for folks, euro dollar is that what you're talking about? Euro dollar
2: contracts. Forgive me. Absolutely. Yeah. So short rates in the in the US and short rates in in Europe, all too low. And Sonia as well. The short rates in the in the UK, everything is broken down. Everything. Now, all that said it's not as obvious that you should be putting on those short-rate bets anymore. I mean, I like it when I've got an asymmetric risk reward, and I think most people do. So there was nothing in those prices. Now there's quite a lot of rate hikes priced in yeah. these yes. contracts already.
1: <laughs> yes, a lot. And 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 that's interesting that so much has been priced in. And I think the question we keep getting is, it, is, too, is maybe too much priced into the bond market. Maybe not, it sounds like. And then not enough in the U.S. equity market. Um, but I want to I want to switch gears, though, for one second, because so while we've seen this and you're talking about things breaking down at the front end and we know what's been happening um, in is certainly for U.S. equities and some of those high flying tech names, an area that people have been running to some people got it early too in the fall wh- who saw this coming is energy commodities. You've seen big moves in those markets. And uranium is something we get a question about a lot, especially if you look at the intersection of what's happening with ESG. And I, I want to play a clip for everyone of a conversation uh, that Tony Greer, who we know uh, is on uh, all the time and, and very focused on commodities. Tony had a conversation with Doomberg uh, a couple of days ago um, where they talked about uranium. Let's have a listen.
3: Last time I was on, I, I specifically said my biggest concern with the trade is everybody understands the thesis. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, yeah. if everybody yeah. understands the thesis, then the price is probably pretty efficient and the easy right. gains are gone. Um, and then it goes from a trade to an investment. And there's a distinction, of course. And um, as you know, you're a trader much more so than we are. We're sort of classical investors. I'm prepared to hold uranium for five years. Um, right. And I'm happy with the allocation of my personal portfolio. I don't manage other people's money. I'm not accountable to quarterly benchmarks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's important for people who are listening who might be accountable to quarterly benchmarks or who might be managing uh, other people's money to understand the prism through which our analysis of the situation is coming from and it's probably different than yours and that's okay as long as everybody understands it
0: no that's extremely important and I like to uh, highlight that because we have a lot of risk takers um, that watch real vision and I find that a lot of them you know will come back to me and say hey you know what what do you think about this do you still like this and things like that so it's very important for us to frame this in a phase whereby you know if various portions of this trade pull back 20 or 40 or 30% that that's not necessarily a deal breaker for your thesis. Is that fair to say?
3: Yeah. And again, there's a difference between investing and trading. And we would um, not proclaim to be experts in either. <laughs> but we, we just observe the markets, uh, highlight things. Our objective at Doomberg, and I'm sure it's similar with yours, is um, we provide information, analysis and context for people to insert into their own investment process. <laughs>
1: The green chicken makes me smile every time when I see that. I I love what he did there. So, And that interview, by the way, is available on Essential Plus and Pro tiers. Um, So, Harry, what are you thinking about? And I love that, by the way, he was talking about time frame, because sometimes we don't, right? I mean, if if you've got a quarterly deadline or five-year horizon, two very, very different things. Um, So what are you thinking about around uranium?
2: So we talked about uranium last time as well. And I, I loved uranium. I, I I have the trade. I have on uh, the four U's, you know, UU U, 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 the U.S. producer, and I have CCJ, which is a big Canadian producer. And uh, I said, you know, I liked it, but uh, how do I how do I put it? I put it the last time around something along the lines of it's a great specy trade. It's a but it's a meme at the moment. It's because mm. none of this demand has really materialized yet. And I believe that demand will materialize, but it's not there yet. All the demand we're seeing is spec demand. And you know, it got whacked like a meme. The thing is not necess- it's, not a, it's not a gamestop or anything, but it's, it's way off the top. I took some off at good levels. I was pleased. Um, and I'm probably going to put that money back in, but we're still not seeing a pickup in underlying demand for uranium. The actual end users are not getting it. Now, I would argue, what happened in Germany? Uh, with regard to gas prices and lack of uh, renewable energy over the summer has kind of been a, a reality check for a bunch of people who didn't think they needed uranium. So the Germans announced they were going to phase it out. I suspect they're going to announce it comes back in, that they're going to phase yeah. it back in again. But it hasn't happened yet. I also think you know there's a good chance that we see rearmament or the uh, an expansion of Chinese demand for uranium for weapons. Um, they're nervous. Relations aren't good. They're probably going to want to scale up their strategic deterrent. Um, these things are not necessarily good news. <laughs> People made Yes, yeah, I, yeah, oh, so I was just thinking that. <laughs> um, but on the plus side, I did notice that the Chinese had reached a heads of terms with the Argentinian government to build a nuclear power plant in Argentina. Um, given how those things the Chinese usually run these things, I bet you it's collateralized by the plant itself. So if Argentina defaults, they get to keep a nuclear power plant in Argentina. Um, it's I think it's only a matter of time before various governments decide to put more of their energy bets into nuclear. But so far, it hasn't actually materialized and the, every monetary authority in the West is tightening rates. So is it a great time for specy bets? Not great, no.
1: No. But as you point out, some other stuff going on on the other side, are you are you looking at the the, the defense angle is interesting. Are you looking at other investments in that on that theme, on that defense theme, increased spending around defense? I,
2: I love defense spending and I love defense spending because I'm noticing what's happening with the discussion between the Russians and the Ukrainians now. You know, I, I'm one of those idiots that actually read uh, the Russian Ministry of Finance, uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, press releases. Of course you do, um, Harry. Uh, yeah, because, you know, what are you going to do when you live in, in Andover, Massachusetts? For fun? <laughs> but um, when I look at those, I do not see anything, that, anything which would make me think they're definitely going to invade anywhere. I really don't see that. Um, mm-hmm. But I do see other veiled threats that the Russian authorities are making, uh, as a as something they're going to respond if, with if the United States doesn't respond to their concerns, um, and I that just makes me feel so nervous about where this thing is going in the medium term. Right now, I would argue that U.S. defense spending, defense stocks haven't performed particularly well not over the last say twelve months. Um, they're still below where they were before COVID. And I'd argue that uh, total U.S. defense spending is maybe 3% of GDP, something about that. Uh, Back in the 80s, that was, I think, 6% of GDP. And in the early 70s, more like 8% of GDP. I have a sneaking suspicion that given all the noise that's happening, that the United States is going to... earmark an awful lot of money for their own hypersonic missile programs and things like that. So there's a whole bunch of defense stocks, which I will not shill on on Real Vision, but you guys can look up whichever ETF you want that may well benefit from an increase in defense spending because it doesn't look to me as if things are going to calm down geopolitically anytime soon.
1: We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You know, th- we, I talked about this with Peter Bukvar earlier today, and for all the volatility we've seen in equities and you see people trying to adjust this new regime, folks have been pointing out you haven't maybe seen the fallout in the high-yield market that you might have expected to see. Uh, what, are you, what are you looking at there? Do you think that's coming, and is there opportunity there?
2: So MI2 is unambiguously short HYG, the the high-yield ETF, Um, And we're bearish credit across the board, but particularly bearish high yield. Our argument is uh, financial conditions have to tighten at some point over the next time, you know, over the Fed's time horizon. My suspicion is they go a little slower than I would, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see where the politics leads them and maybe they'll be alarmed by the political fallout from higher inflation. If you tighten policy, HYG is going to have to come down. That's why we, we like that bet. And there was nothing. There was no risk, significant risk premium priced into that stuff. Uh, it's worthwhile taking it, paying attention to market structure as well. There is... Absolutely nowhere to go with this paper. The guys who own it are big institutions, they can trade with each other, but net, net, big institutions can't get out of this. The only real way of seeing the high yield allocations come down is letting the stuff roll off over time. Because, you know, if you've got a five year duration portfolio of high yield and you wait a year, it'll be a four year duration (laughs) portfolio of high (laughs) yield. So that it will slowly roll off. But otherwise, this stuff is out there, financial conditions tighten. Tightening financial conditions is like sucking the ear out of a bell jar. This is the analogy used in reminiscence of a stock operator. Somebody somewhere is going to find themselves short of liquidity and struggling if we eventually tighten financial conditions. If we don't see that, it's because we haven't tightened financial conditions. Classically, high yield bonds is one of the places that struggles to get liquidity when financial conditions tighten. I would expect risk premium on these things to widen.
1: Mm. Uh, something to watch out for, uh, and, and another another good news note. Right, this sounds so ominous, but um, but you're absolutely you're absolutely right. Whenever I hear liquidity shortages, it makes me nervous. We have a question from Achilles on the exchange. Uh, how does tapering the balance sheet affect the yield curve? If raising interest rates affect the short term interest rates, how does the bond rollover affect the longer interest rates? I assume they'd both have to both hike the rate interest rates and reduce the balance sheet to avoid an
2: inversion of the yield curve. So. I don't know if they have to do it to avoid it, right? I don't know if that's true, uh, but I suspect he's right. Um, You know, this is a great question, which is not focused on enough. Uh, I've read uh, Gert-Jan Vlieger's paper uh, at at the Bank of England when he was a, a director at the Bank of England. And uh, that paper said that QE does not do anything other than affect the, the, ch- the only channel through which QE worked was the expectations channel. Mm. Um, so I went back to various friends of mine who, who actually have contacts at the Fed and said, do you believe this? Um, and to be fair to Mr. Vlieger, who is by far a really good economist, by the way, um, worked with him at Brevin Howard, um, uh, Jan Vlieger's view, is the only intellectually responsible, respectable view for economics because there's no other like way in which it can work. However, uh, that isn't the prevailing view with central with the Fed at least. And every you know, it's, not everyone believes that. Um, I think most people understand that the balance sheet has been supportive to risk premium and to asset prices. So when they shrink the balance sheet, the first thing that's vulnerable is MBS. Because they've been buying a lot of MBS, and mortgage-backed market. securities. Mortgage-backed securities. Sorry, and mortgage-backed securities is the single largest block that affects fixed rate vol. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like every time you buy the your mortgage-backed security, you're effectively selling rate vol. The Fed's been buying them, so the market hasn't been selling the rate vol. So the market isn't short rate vol. As the Fed re- reduces its portfolio of MBS um that stuff will come back in and rate vol will be under upward pressure upward pressure and rate vol is highly correlated with uh upward sloping yield curves Mm -hmm. so i think achilles if i've caught the name right um is right that this will help steepen out a yield curve but of course second we did a paper at MIT on accelerative oscillations. Just because. Oh, we like. yeah!
1: Please explain this. I, lo- I love that okay. when I saw it. I I I I had to stretch my brain a little bit, Harry. But t- talk us through this.
2: So you remember the Tacoma Narrows Bridge? Everyone's seen that that footage of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, uh, like breaking apart. That's because the wind blew at a certain frequency, and the frequency was such that it amplified the natural oscillations of the bridge as it swung. Well, right now we have a Fed that has refused to see the obvious inflation that was staring it in in the face for a year. Same with the ECB, and the Fed has just refused. Um, They've suddenly noticed. Oh look, there might be some inflation. Oh look, the output gap might be quite small. Maybe we should do something. Fine, but they—they're not going to act immediately. In the meantime, we have, I noticed that inventories in housing are really tight. Inventories in autos are really tight. People have actually built a whole bunch of cars that are just awaiting chips. So there's huge inventories of cars that just need chips to go. And then we it'll be no, no big problem getting hold of a car. Same with the houses. People have, have built, and there's a, I saw some graphs showing that there's a record number of houses that are being spec built on behalf of buyers. So you paid for the house, but it has not yet been constructed. Um, you can't finance those. You cannot fix that rate on that house. So when that house is finally delivered to you, after you've paid your deposit, you'll find out what you're, where you borrow to finance that house at that point. Right now, you do not know. Um, it would not shock me if just at the point at which that inventory comes out, the Fed has jacked up rates on you and fiscal policy turns from positive to an, a headwind on growth. And everything goes, it, everything is timed perfectly to make the economy slow down. So it's not the first half of the year that risk comes into view. It's way into the late 2022, but it would not shock me if we get the mother of all policy errors down the line. Now, uh, that said, I wouldn't want to fade where bonds are going because there's not much to stop them right now. But, you know, My colleagues, this is why we like the high-yield bond short. You're short a bond and you're short credit as well. If they tighten financial conditions, high-yield bonds have got to get hurt.
1: Harry, amazing stuff as always. Uh, You got to come on more often. We love having you on.
2: Um, Looking at that picture of me, I've got to lose weight before I come (laughs) on more often. (laughs)
1: All right. Well, we're sending a personal trainer to your house. If that's the case, we're not going to take no for an answer. But seriously, so great to have you on in a day when we're finishing out another volatile week. People have so many questions and we've got big, big changes on the way. So hopefully all that information helped some of our
2: viewers prepare for that. So appreciate it. So it was a pleasure, Maggie. And people should, you know, ask questions in the comments on these videos. You know, we do the uh, insider talk things. Feel free to ask questions. I I always kind of lurk in those chats and I'm happy to answer anything I can answer.
1: Which is terrific because we definitely had some that we weren't able to get to. So um, go ahead and put them on the exchange and Harry will have a take a look and uh, get back to you if he can. In the meantime, uh, the conversation is always happening on the exchange, but thank you all so much for watching. Have a great weekend. Take care and good luck out there.